Amen. So, almost three weeks ago now, I had a couple of conversations, or re- actually brief text exchanges, uh, one with Hans and the other with Rebecca Gandy. And at the time, those two conversations or text, text um, exchanges seemed totally unrelated, but this week they came together rather nicely and have helped me formulate my thoughts for uh, tonight. Again, this is, um, I, I'm really going to I'm not going to preach per se, as we've been doing the last couple weeks. Um, I want to share some thoughts about our passage and then hopefully launch you into uh, your own study through the small group questions and uh, uh, the family worship guide that's in our bulletin, okay? so But anyway, I want to begin with uh, a question, and that question is, how can we not waste this corona situation? How is it possible for us not to waste the virus how is it for us? Uh, how is it that we can uh, possibly not waste the circumstances surrounding it, uh, whether we're diagnosed with it or not? Um, what can we do to make sure that it's not a waste? And, and I think one of the answers is that we can use this by actually reminding us of our study uh, back in Leviticus, back at the end of October. It can remind us of chapters 11 through 15 of Leviticus and to what and to who those chapters pointed that I believe uh, are before us right here in our text tonight. They they dovetail perfectly with one another. And so I want to look at two points tonight. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, anyway, uh, bear with me. Uh, The first point is Corona and the ritual purity laws. And the second point is Christ and the better hope, okay? Corona and the ritual purity laws and Christ and the better hope. Uh, let me pray before we get, um, before we get any further. Uh, Father, would you in these moments um, encourage us from your word, help us not to waste the virus and our circumstances. Help us to see and to respond to all of it as a part of your plan and a part of the hope-filled path that we are walking in our journey toward and journey of being conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus. And I pray these things in his name. Amen. All right, so... The more I've thought about it, the more I I believe this coronavirus, and I know we're tired of thinking about it and hearing about it, um, but the more I've thought about it, the more I believe that it would have rendered someone unclean in the Old Testament and would have been included in those chapters 11 to 15 of Leviticus. Uh, Think about this. When we consider the symptoms, when we think of the contagious nature and the devastating effects of the virus, when we consider this two-week, um, this two-week outside the camp type quarantine that has been imposed for those who have been diagnosed or for those who have been in contact with those who have um, who have possibly been contaminated by someone who's been diagnosed, and when you add to that these ritual type cleansings, now they're not religious in any sense, but when you think about the 
um, the specific and regimented and repetitive washings that we're being instructed to, to undergo. You know, we're, we're, we're told to wash our hands in a particular way. We want to make sure that we get every part. And, and then when we think about uh, the sanit, not only how, but how long, when we think about the sanitizing that takes place, we're to sanitize our hands, we're to sanitize whatever we touch, we're to sanitize whatever we touch and whatever it sat on. Um, if we've been out in public and at work, we're supposed to take off our shoes in the garage and spray them with alcohol, take our clothes off, put them in the washing machine, go and shower before we even hug our family. Um, and, and when we think about what we're even doing right now, we're not able to gather before and with God's people in His presence for worship. And when you take all those things, it, it, it's it's eerily similar to what we saw in, in Leviticus. If you remember back in Leviticus 10, God told Moses to tell the priests that they were to distinguish between what was holy and what was common, between what was unclean and what was clean. That which was holy was given to or dedicated by or touched by or in the presence of God. And it was considered holy because it was in his presence because he was um, his quintessential nature, to quote a commentary, his quintessential nature was holiness. His, his holiness was his intrinsic character. And so um, it, whatever what was considered holy was considered different and unique and altogether other. It was considered whole and complete. Then we have that which was common. That which was common was considered normal. It was a part of everyday life. Um, and these ritual cleansing laws were, were used to control and regulate what was in that common space. So uh, if something was clean, it could remain in the area. If something was unclean, it either had to be ritually cleansed or it had to be removed from the area. Okay? Um, now, you'll also remember that the laws that were laid out specifically about what was clean and unclean and so forth are in chapters 11 through 15, and we're not going to review all those. But I will point you to verse 31 of chapter 15 because it's there we're given the reason why all that took place. And it says this, Thus shall you, the Lord said to Moses, Thus shall you keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. So because God who is holy was dwelling amongst his people in the tabernacle, which was also holy, anyone who desired to enter into the holy must not be unclean. Right? They had to be clean because that which is unclean cannot be in the presence of what is holy. Because what was holy would consume it. So the tabernacle was not to be defiled in any way. Therefore, everyone who was to, here's the language, anyone who wanted to draw near to the Lord... And, and draw near to them there in the tabernacle had to be ritually clean. And if you were with us in a part of that study, there were three points that, about these ritual cleansing laws that, that we brought out. And the first one is that holiness involves goodness, it involves uprightness, it involves uniqueness, it involves completeness, wholeness, and perfect unity. And these purity laws not only confronted the people with their lack of those things. But those purity laws also confronted, confronted them with the devastating results of sin and the separation that it caused. Right? Secondly, these laws pointed out to them and reminded them uh, that God was gracious. They exhibited His grace. 
because they were prescribed rituals for them to follow that enabled them to be restored, to become clean, and to be able to approach the Lord in, in the tabernacle. And then thirdly, these laws were given to stress the need for their preparation to approach God's presence. Right? They needed to prepare to come to the tabernacle. The fact that uncleanness in some form or fashion was going to touch every person. I mean, it was literally impossible not to become unclean at some point. And so they knew that. And so they knew that they should never presume upon the Lord and enter into the tabernacle or in his presence casually or nonchalantly. And a great deal of time and thought would have been necessary for them to come and to approach the temple. The, the laws would have, would have created this, this extreme nature of caution. Right? We, we want to we take care to approach rightly. But here's the thing. Any confidence they might have had because they had become ritually clean wouldn't have been a full and total confidence. There was no way for them to be completely and totally confident that whatever they had done to make themselves clean or to be ritually clean would have enabled them to approach fully. And, here, and there are a couple of reasons why. One is that access, they knew, they knew access to the Lord was always limited. It was always limited. Full, um, full and complete access and and. Um, yeah, just, just full access was only allowed once a year. It was allowed on the Day of Atonement and only the priest was allowed to enter in and approach the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies behind the veil. So even their own approach was limited. Their drawing near had boundaries, regardless of how confident they were. So, they, so their confidence was never a wholehearted confidence. And secondly, it also wasn't a wholehearted confidence because the full cleansing, the, the, the completeness, the wholeness, the perfection that was necessary to dwell fully and completely and perpetually with the Lord was not offered in these cleansings. And we know that because our text itself makes it very clear. It's, it, it's, there's, there's no arguing that what, they, what the people and nation of Israel were to do to approach the Lord did not provide that which they needed to fully approach. Look at verse 11 of our text. It says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Well, it's of course a rhetorical question. And the obvious answer is there would have been no need. Right? There wouldn't have been a need. So the completeness, the wholeness, and the perfection or the salvation that was needed to draw near and dwell fully and completely and perpetually with the Lord was not offered through the Levitical priesthood or through the ritual cleansing laws. Because if it had, Christ would not have needed to come. Christ would not have needed to, to die. Right? His work would have been for nothing. In verses 12 to 17... He drives home the point that because Christ was of the order of Melchizedek, 
that everything's changed. Right? He's telling these Jewish Christians, it's all changed because the priesthood has changed. Uh, the laws have changed because the priesthood and the sacrificial system and all of those cleansing laws were inseparable. Right? They were together. So if, so that if there was a new priesthood, which there was after the order of Melchizedek, then that meant the old ritual cleansing laws and everything else that was a part of the sacrificial system was eliminated. It was no more. And here's where this gets really good. I mean, it's all good, but this is where this really gets good. In verses 18 and 19, he says it was eliminated because that the law and the, that rich, those ritual cleansings, the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system was all weak and useless. And it was weak and useless because, as we've already said, it did not completely do what needed to be done. It did, it did in fact, point to the sinfulness and need of man and, and, the, and the corruptness of man. Absolutely pointed to the corruptness of man. But it did not provide that which was needed to restore that completeness, wholeness, and perfection. It did not have the power to save anyone. But as we said several times in our, in our study of Leviticus, even though the law was insufficient in terms of producing the salvation that was needed, it was in fact completely sufficient in its accomplishing of everything the Lord desired for it to do and what he put it in place to accomplish, which was to identify our sin and our need and to point to the better hope who was Jesus. It all pointed to Christ. Now, three things that I want to um, draw your attention to to kind of launch you into your study through, the, again, the small group questions are in your bulletin. The family worship guide is, is all there. Um, these are just three things to, just, to, to launch you into that. First, I want to draw your attention to verse 14. It says, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Now there's something really interesting there that that word descended actually means to rise or cause to rise. And it literally means has risen. And this is really important because it's a term that's used throughout scripture um, and it has messianic significance. And so what the writer is doing is he is attempting to not only further distance Christ's priesthood from the Levitical priesthood, but he's also saying Christ's priesthood is messianic, right? Jesus is the Messiah. And he, in so doing, he's communicating again to these Jewish Christians who are, who are looking to turn back. He's saying, don't go back. Don't go back to Judaism. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Right? He is the one. He is the anticipated one. Don't go back. Don't revert back to your Judaism. Don't forsake Christ. Don't, and then really don't mix don't start mixing any of your former belief system and the sacrificial rituals with, with Christianity. And that's something that we, that, that's a warning we should heed today. We don't need to be taking a lot of other things from other belief systems. We don't need to be mixing in any of even our own works righteousness and try to mix it in with, with Christianity. It, it, it's Christ alone. He alone is sufficient. Okay? Secondly, in verse 16, the writer states more clearly what he said earlier in the chapter, what we looked at last week, in regards to uh, Christ not being a priest because of genealogy or the law. Right? Uh, verse 16, Christ has become a priest 
not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, if, if you've studied Leviticus, and as we did last fall, you know that under the law, the priests had to be Levites, and they also couldn't have any physical defects. One commentator actually counted, and there were 142 different physical defects or deformities that would have disqualified a man from the priesthood. And so even after they were ordained, and even after they were serving, there were several external hoops that they would have to continually jump through to maintain their position as a priest. But the writer here says that Christ's priesthood wasn't based on any of that at all. It wasn't based on his lineage. It wasn't based on the law. His priesthood was based upon the power of an indestructible life. What it means is his priesthood was based on and inaugurated by the resurrection. It was inaugurated by the resurrection. He had died, but he had risen from the grave. He had conquered death. And so he was, um, as the God-man, he was... Physically, mentally, emotionally, behaviorally, volitionally, and spiritually perfect. And his priesthood was eternal. He he through that indestructible life and because of his resurrection, his priesthood was eternal and it would never end. It will never end. It would never end for them as he speaks to them. it, It would never end for us. It will never end. It will never be interrupted. His serving He is serving as our great high priest even now. He is serving bodily on our behalf. He rose from the dead bodily. He ascended into heaven bodily. He is at the right hand of the Father bodily interceding for us. And that brings me to the third thing I want to emphasize, and it's in verse 19. It says, A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Through Christ's priesthood, we have a better hope of drawing near. Having placed our faith in Christ, we've placed our faith in Christ who is our perfect sacrifice. He is our, our perfect high priest, our great high priest, and we've been forgiven of all our sins. And having rested in and having and, and continuing to rest in his righteousness alone for uh, the standard of holiness that we must meet, and having been fully united to him by faith, we are, we are complete. We're whole. We're lacking in nothing. We've been perfected. The Bible calls us saints. Paul calls believers over and over saints. Right? We, we are set apart as holy. We are set apart for holy use. And we, because of that, because of our salvation being in Christ and our union with Him and all that's a part of that, we have unlimited access to the Father. It's unlimited we are able to draw near to him fully, completely, and perpetually. We don't need to. We don't need an, an appointment. There's no delay in that. It will never be interrupted because he will never cease to do what he is doing. And so, we're, whereas the law provided limited access, we're provided in Christ unlimited access. There's no mistaking that Christ is better than anything about Judaism or the law. He is our hope. Our hope is our hope is and our hope is in the resurrected high priest 
who is interceding on our behalf. And that's why James even promises those who draw near to God, he will draw near to them. Right? We can draw near to him in Christ. And he is faithful to draw near to us. And so he is, Jesus is the answer to any and all problems that we face because there is nothing greater. There is nothing greater than the power of an indestructible life. There are people at... Winnie and I were even watching today. There, there, was, uh, there are people out there that are saying, okay, God is trying to get our attention and there's something that he wants to say and so we need to, to be still and, and be quiet and, and hear what the Spirit might be saying. Let me, let me tell you what he's saying. He's saying what he's always said and that is, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He, there is no one greater. There is no power greater. There is no situation greater than the power of an indestructible life that he possesses. It is him to whom we should look at all times, even in the midst of this. Brothers and sisters, I can say with full assurance that we will not waste this virus. We will not waste the circumstances of this virus if we continue to look to him. He, he is the answer. So let us draw near to God confidently and continually as we trust in and look to the Lord Jesus. He will meet our every need, period. Let's pray together.